This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to Panel Borders on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is Resonance's monthly show about comics, graphic novels, and sequential art. Today's program is an early autumn special, in which I'm looking at comic books that feature ensemble casts. Biscuits by Jenny Robbins and Marble Cake by Jason Scott Smith. My interview with Jason will be coming up in half an hour, and we're talking about this magical realist tale of various characters in South London whose lives intertwine via a supermarket and the unfortunate consequences of pressing the wrong button on your TV remote. To start off with, though, I'm talking to Jenny Robbins about her graphic novel Biscuits Assorted, which presents a snapshot of the intertwining lives of modern women from diverse backgrounds and was published recently by Myriad Editions. My interview with Jenny was recorded at the online Cartoon County get-together, where I interview a creator in front of an audience of their peers, and then there's a Q&A afterwards, inviting questions from the audience. In my Q&A with Jenny, the questions are fielded by Miff Tristram, who is a fantastic graphic novelist in her own right. So Jenny, perhaps if you want to talk a little bit about the book and then we can chat about it afterwards. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm Jenny Robbins. I identify primarily as an illustrator, although I do at the moment I do a lot more comics than illustration. Um, and I'm also a teacher, so I spend quite a lot of time doing that as well. Generally, I've done a lot of collage and drawing words and birds and things. Some comics that I've made other than biscuits, um, two of these use collage, no, three of them use collage as elements as well. And collage is kind of a big thing that I like to do for fun. So it's my main kind of unwinding activity. I like to do a lot of collage and scrapbooking and, and sketchbooking and stuff. Um, I also really enjoy... Um, just observing people and looking at I like I like people when they don't know that I'm watching them <laughs> that sounds really creepy <laughs> but um, uh, yeah I basically you know people watching very early pages from biscuits show more evidence of my love for drawing a bunch of random people so and I like drawing crowds other pages that are just kind of mashups um, which I wanted to put in uh, to reference back to the way that I like to collage because even though these are drawn I kind of see them as collages so I see biscuits as um, as well as stories, and it very much is stories about women, it's also um, kind of my sketchbook of London life. So it's observations of people and places and um, those kind of mashed up together. The book cover got uh, cookie cutters on the front with the main characters, and it looks like a biscuit tin. It's, um, it started with 3.52 billion project because um, that's the number, approximate number of women there are in the world and coincidentally the approximate number of okay ways that it's okay to be a woman. And it started with a poster that I did uh, for One Beat Zines about feminism and how it isn't simple and it should always be intersectional. Um, so I started doing these cookie cutters and I gave them captions and I put them on Instagram and that was the beginning of the project. Um, and then I started to realize that I wanted to make comics about them. Um, so in the book, they're set out as, these cookie cutters are kind of like little chapter headings, but there's they're very frequent. So like every few pages or so and following the cat the cookie cutter and the caption so here you've got Maya finds it difficult to make long-term plans um you have stories that show little snapshots into the life of that character would you like me to read this one out or yeah yeah okay so this is a Maya page uh, Maya's always drawn 
on public transport, ex except when she appears in other people's stories and she's always on the phone. So she's on the phone and she's saying, I don't even eat that much salt though. I know it's so bad for you. I don't eat processed foods because to me, they just taste so salty. Exactly. Salt the sauce, not the pasta. That's my motto. No, no, not the pasta. The only thing I do need salt on is chips. It's all or nothing then. And popcorn. Can't have salt with chips without salt. Oh, and noodles and nuts and eggs. No, yeah, they're great. I used to buy those all the time, ready salted. <laughs> and this was actually almost entirely lifted from a conversation that I overheard. Huh. <laughs> um, so slightly changed. Um, and it's also the least dirty of all of the Maya pages. A lot of her pages have uh, sex jokes on them, but I didn't <laughs> think I should share that necessarily today. These are the three main characters of the book, uh, Clara, Sarah and Hannah have the biggest uh, stories so it's lots of kind of interweaving stories and little bits and pieces but um, these three characters especially do have an overarching narrative and stuff actually does happen to them and I also wanted to share these pages today which are from the um, feminist festival that happens right in the middle of the book. I did two different versions of this page this, um, which was really fun so it's the South Bank and you can hear on these pages you can see what all of the uh, background characters are saying and then I did another set, which is the same drawings, but I've zoomed in on the characters that we know. And so we can see what they're saying. Um, obviously, it's like a feminist festival. So it relates to it being International Women's Day. But also as um, this is one of the one things that we really can't do at the moment is come together in big crowds and go to festivals and, and go to talks and things like that. When I'm at a big event like this, I always think, I wonder if there's anyone here I know. And then feminism that might be relevant today at the bottom left there where it says... Feminism done properly should benefit women and men. And her friend says, the only thing feminism has done for my marriage is I feel guilty for earning less and my husband feels guilty for doing less housework. Hmm. But I still do earn less and he still does do less housework. Hmm. Uh, nice. Gosh, so a, a, a lot to kind of unpack <laughs> and get into. I'll start off by throwing you a curveball because I'm kind. Um, one thing that kind of occurred to me while I was reading the book is that there are a lot of similarities with the uh, the novel um, Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadette Evaristo. Um, and the amount of time it must have taken you to draw this, you were probably drawing this at the same time that she was writing her novel. And so I wonder if there was something in the zeitgeist that inspired both of you to do this kind of portmanteau storytelling where you have loads of characters who kind of only very briefly meet, but their lives intersect in different ways and the variety of different characters are a way of saying something about all the variety of uh, female experiences um well i mean it's it's not a new format is it there have been no. been works like this before i think um i don't want to compare myself too much to bernadine Everisto, she's an absolute legend <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> but um, i think there is a way of looking at identity politics um that points out how reductive it is without without saying it's not worthwhile um and i really respect the way that she has done that by including um a lot of people i mean obviously the majority of her characters are black but um mine are more diverse um but like so many different labels that they apply to themselves but it's not the point of the story it's mm. it's um secondary to the story Hmm. But it, and it, it's it's just it's funny as well that there is also the similarity that all of the characters are in the same type, place at the same time 
at a feminist event by a theatre. <laughs> you know, so it's just yeah. It was <laughs> Although my something... mind more um, more the people that are not involved with the event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, apart from Jess, who's giving a talk, I have like the the waitresses that are there and like um, people that didn't know it was happening, people that didn't that just came because they fancied someone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think mine might be a little bit um, more casual in that sense. Mm. So you spoke about the genesis of this project being your work for One Beat Zines. Could you talk a little bit about your kind of history in zines and comics? Because obviously this is a huge work and I can't imagine that you started it cold. You must have done other kind of sequential work before this. Well, as a lot of people that are here tonight know, the comics community in the UK is is brilliant and welcoming and supportive. And um, I... Um, met Jules Scheel at an LD, LD Comics event, um, which is what led to me doing the poster. Most of my other comics work has come out of meeting people at events. Um, I did some work for Soaring Penguin because I met um, John at a Comica event. I met, I did my my very first uh, small press comic that I did for Solipsistic Pop, I did because I went to an event which my friend told me his brother was running. I'd never met his brother, but it was in like a pub and it was and it was a solipsistic pop launch and I just went and I just showed him my zines and he was like oh cool do you want to be in the next one um so it's so I believe so strongly in just showing up going to the pub and like being bullshit and showing people your zines (laughs) um in order to yeah get to be in more anthologies it's a very good Mm. strategy I made zines before I made any of those comics I made zines called what birds are really thinking and I did Real TV Wisdom, where I draw pictures of people from reality TV, because I love reality TV and things that they say. Oh, and I did a, a collage love zine where I made alternative Valentine's cards, and I made those into zines. So those are all still available sometimes on Etsy when I've got enough stock to put them up, because they're just like infinitely foldable. Nice. Yeah, and I've been very lucky as well to be associated with uh, Broken Frontier. So I've been in Broken Frontier anthology. I got to do the cover for that a couple of years ago. Yeah, there's just been lots of good opportunities to do different mm. little comics. And actually, on one of those first Comic or Social Club events that I went to, I was given some very good advice, which was don't start your graphic novel. <laughs> <laughs> do some small comics first, get, get some practice. And yeah, when I look back at the comics that I've done over sort of the last eight years, I've definitely learned a lot. <laughs> um, but I've learned a lot doing biscuits as well, because it's still, um, I still look back at the, the early pages that I did that I submitted to Myriad, and I'm like, oh should really have had a better approach to speech bubbles at that point. <laughs> but it obviously, I mean, it obviously did the trick because to enter the Myriad competition, you have to submit a certain number of pages and those pages have to be enough to impress the judges. So obviously what you did then, you did right. Well, I it's 15 to 30 pages. So I took that as a challenge. Oh, wow. I was like, I'm going to do 30. And before entering the competition, had you been thinking about doing a graphic novel of this length or did finding out about the competition kind of inspire you to bite the bullet and do kind of a chapter's worth and then think if this does well I can expand another hundred (laughs) plus pages this this project could have been any length in the world like um, I like the idea of it being a graphic novel because obviously I've I've wanted to do a graphic novel I've wanted to do one since I was a child but um, I think if I hadn't got a publishing deal I might have put it out as as shorter issues myself or I might have put it online, or I might have done something different. Actually, in the summer of that deadline, I had another comics project in mind, and I was deciding between which one I was going to work up into a pitch for Myriad. Uh, so yeah, maybe that will happen at some point. Interesting. 
because it is quite a complex narrative with the lives of the characters kind of taking place simultaneously and interacting with each other. Did you have like one of those murder mystery walls with loads of kind of photos of people and lines connecting them in order to kind of work out the plot and, and how it interacted? I did have quite a complicated spreadsheet, mm. um, which was colour coded and like different numbers of pages, but um, no pictures. No, I used quite a lot of sort of different strategies to map things out over the time that I was working on it. And because they are kind of moving parts, it was possible to, to juggle things around and put them in a different order. Mm. which was good I think yeah there were a few bits right at the end when I realized like oh no better change that because logically that makes no sense <laughs> and there's actually um a one-page story that is in the, the um, Broken Frontier anthology which um is like a a, a meet cute for Clara and Hannah almost where they meet <laughs> and then I realized that I'd accidentally written it out by having them meet a different way <laughs> just leave that out <laughs> Um, so now it's like an alternate reality page. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, you spoke about how with the different characters, and maybe this also kind of works really well visually for the reader, you have each character kind of located in a different kind of location and their story is told in kind of a different way. For example, Maya always being in that nine panel grid on a bus talking on her phone. Where did that idea come from? I have no idea. um I think just because the first Maya page that I did which was in Mm. um that that first 30 pages was that format I was like well I like this I'm just going to do this again Um, and because I wanted to because I wanted to limit her story to just those snippets so that you sort of left guessing who she's talking to and you don't find out till the end Mm. um from most of the other page layouts I very much made it up as I went along so it was kind of what do I think lends itself to this scene um uh and sometimes I go quite off piste and I do some quite weird pages and then sometimes it's just much simpler I think it's just mm. yeah I played it a lot by ear I'm afraid but I mean I think the the playfulness is kind of really intriguing and it kind of draws you into the story because you're not afraid to be experimental with the layout. For example, those last two pages you showed in the presentation where the the panel borders and the structure of the page is laid out almost like a Constantina uh, kind of flyer or something, which works well with, you know, you were just talking about a festival. Yeah, I mean, it's meant to mirror the um, that pamphlet that mm. um, somebody's holding in the page. <laughs> Helen is holding, yeah. So it's like the same format. Yeah, I think um, being an art teacher, I am basically spend most of my days trying to come up with innovative ideas for my students. So it's kind of um, second nature in some ways. I'm always just like, oh, but could this be something else? Do I mash these up? Um, mm-hmm. But I think I tried to rein myself in enough to make sure that it's still read like a comic. Yeah. But so to a certain extent, it was uh, Jenny, the teacher, telling Jenny, the comic book artist, oh, you should push yourself a little bit harder. Why not try it this way? (laughs) Yeah, or like, wouldn't it be fun if we did this? Because you'll get a better grade for your (laughs) AOT. Another thing um, that struck me about the book, which is probably very much a, a personal thing for anyone who knows my research, is that you show a real interest in the architecture of London. Uh, For example, one page has uh, kind of a collage of different doors. Um, The way that you structure 
uh, or rather the way that you depict characters in the built environment shows a real interest in that kind of um, urban setting. Can, is that something that's just intrinsic about telling a story about London or are you also kind of interested in the fabric of the, uh, the city as well? Um, I think one of my favourite things about London as a city is how varied the architecture is. Um, obviously, there's an awful lot of Victorian terraces, and I think, um, but there's, especially in, in the city itself, I, I, I have read some about this, but I'm not good at retaining facts, but I think a lot of it is to do with the weird, complicated laws that are hangover from um, when guilds owned everything. So there's, um, I used to do um, events waitressing at a bunch of guild houses, mm. which is also where the events waitressing stuff in the book comes from. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I got to go in all of these old like um, Sadler's Hall, Clothmakers Hall, all these really old buildings, and they're right next to like skyscrapers, um, and just like all of these different architectures sort of sat next to each other and being really incongruous and not um, like there's that great view that you can see um, the gherkin. Mm. right next to like a Tudor building isn't it like I just love that um visually I find that very satisfying um and then I think as an illustrator telling things about your characters by their environment is a really important skill as well um mm. I always remember when I was um trying to go to uni and I uh, I didn't go to uh, Portsmouth Uni but I remember from my interview for Portsmouth Uni the head of illustration there asked me to describe his front room <laughs> <laughs> as, as this kind of idea that it's an illustrator skill you've got to be able to fill in the details it's like I mean being a comics creator really is you get to do all of the jobs on a film set you get to be the art director you get to be props you get to be casting you get to be um and set design mm, mm. so it's awesome <laughs> nice well, yeah, no, well, I, I mean, and I, uh, I think you kind of, I mean, it was interesting that you said, um, you know, one of the views of London that is interesting is seeing the Gherkin juxtaposed with the Tudor building. And then that's kind of what you're doing in the storytelling as well. You're juxtaposing someone from one culture uh, next to someone from a very different culture and seeing how those two kind of rub up against each other, which I guess is the London experience, you know. <laughs> joy of the city <laughs> if, if you're open to it i think there's still plenty of people that live in london that mostly talk to people that are very much of the same background and um, socioeconomic situation that they are and thinking of kind of the experience of living in london that collage you showed where it's all sorts of different layers of the city almost a sort of transparencies on top of each other so it's almost cubist in its approach in the layering that sort of concatenation of different aspects of the landscape, I guess, also reflects the cacophony of being in a crowd in London, being surrounded by all sorts of people. So you're representing that visually, even in a scene where there are no people in it. Yep, cool, cool. <laughs> okay, answered my own question. <laughs> Although obviously not so much at the moment. Yes, well, indeed. <laughs> well, I see that there are um, increasing numbers of questions uh, turning up in the chat. Miff, did you want to look after this bit or shall I? Yeah, I can um, handle that. If anybody has other questions, then do add them to the chat. But let's start with Cherish, um, who's asking, Jenny, what advice would you have told your younger self? So what do you know now about comics that you would have told yourself when you were younger? 
um, I might have told myself when I was younger to get on with them a bit earlier <laughs> um, because I did. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to say looking back, isn't it? Oh, I should have always been doing comics. But um, I think I was like, oh, no, I've got to be like an illustrator. I've got to be, um, I've got to make, I've got to do client work. Um, and I've got to make sure I've got time for that. Um, which like I don't regret a lot of the great work that I did in those years um, and I'm still I still love illustration but I think um, and I've talked to to Gareth who's here tonight about this but before like it's just you have this idea that it's a little bit naughty to do work for yourself sometimes I think especially going through um, all the different complicated weird snobberies that there are in art schools <laughs> and um, and our culture as a whole. So yeah, I think just get on with it. Just do some comics, right. why not? Yeah, I think if comics calls you, you <laughs> in the end, there's nothing else you can be doing. Um, so Cherish also asks, what does creativity mean to you? Um, creativity, I think, is looking outwards um, as much as it is looking inwards. I think it's both, but I think it's being open to influences from anywhere and everywhere and um, being willing to mash those things up and see them in new ways. Great. Yeah. I mean, ask an art teacher. Those <laughs> yeah, from... I might have written a few essays on that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually, that gives me the perfect in for my question, um, which I'm interested in. Do you work full time? And if so, how on earth did you fit a graphic novel around that? <laughs> um, no, uh, praise be, I don't. Uh, I work four days at the moment. Um, I have previously worked three days. Um, it was a weird kind of coming together of events when I when I did get the, the book contract because I'd actually given myself two years when I was working three days um, and I'd taken on supply, supply work. So um, to give myself a bit more cash so I could stop worrying so much about getting illustration clients so I could work on um, putting together a, um, a pitch or a proposal for a book. And um, at, towards the end of that time, when I still didn't know if I was if I was going to get a book contract, they offered me to go to four days, and I'd sort of promised myself that if I didn't have it sorted in two years, I would go full time. So it was kind of like a good partway compromise because that did mean that I could afford to do no supply teaching while I worked on biscuits. Um, I did a couple of illustration jobs that were worth it in that time, but I did stop supply teaching, so I was working four days in school and two days a week mostly um so I'd have one day off a week and then in the holidays obviously I'd work like five days uh, mostly on the comic and then I did I did have a couple of holidays in that time <laughs> I did manage to we managed to get away yeah but really hard work so how long did it take from beginning to end do you reckon um well I don't know like it was, yeah, maybe like, well, from it's, it's a weird thing because I don't know when it started because I did the project before I knew what it was going to be. Um, I would say maybe three years, mm. if you don't count a lot of faffing around in the year before that with, with yeah. cookie cutters and not really knowing where it was going. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, and then we've got a question from Zara. Um, she says, I'm not sure if I've asked you this before, but let's ask it again anyway, because I'm sure we'll all be interested. Um, do you or did you thumbnail your book? Um, no, not really. I do. Um, 
oh maybe we could dig them out at some point I posted a bunch when we were doing the Twitter Q&A with Wallace but um, I basically draw kind of extremely basic page layout stick figure um, A5s that are basically just like like yeah yeah I mean you know they yeah. are just you call yes. that nailing, I reckon. yeah and then um so I know, and I often actually draw the panels before I draw anything in them, which is really fun. It just, because it's so easy at the beginning, you know, I'll just do the panels and then I'll feel like I've achieved something. Um, and yeah, sometimes I have, I get the visual reference ready before I do that. So I know where stuff's going to go, but no, not really. <laughs> so, cool. Um, we've got a question from Saba. Um, oh, Saba. Myth can ask. Okay. Um, it says, are you planning or thinking about the next graphic novel? You did mention earlier another idea that you had had. Um, and if so, are you up for talking about it loosely? Um, and if not, that's okay. Like, I have, I am one of those people that always has way more ideas than I have time to do. So I have, I think about 10 hypothetical next graphic novels. I'd love to do another Biscuits book, um, but I think I'd like to do something less intense first. I'm, at, I'm working on a few small things at the moment. I've just done a um, conversation comic with Natasha Natarajan, which came out on Instagram and Twitter today. I'm doing a small comic for um, the Whip anthology um, that's coming out next summer. And I've, yeah, I've got a few irons in the fire. I'm actually also going to, hopefully do a spin-off zine with more Rosa and Danny WhatsApp conversations, like a whole book of them. Um, so I've started working on that. Uh, the, the book that I was planning to do um, is one that I've literally been thinking about since I was at uni. So probably would need overhauling quite a lot to take a lot of my kind of 19 year old ideas out of, <laughs> update them a little bit. Um, I still love to do it. Yeah, so the second half of Sabah's question was that she was curious to know how long it takes to recover from your debut. <laughs> oh, yes, because <graphic laughs> she's very of that right now. <laughs> yeah. I feel it will take me years to move on yeah. to the next major project. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I think I'm about ready now to move on to start um, working again, which is why I've done, like, doing a few bits and pieces. I definitely needed, I mean, it's hard to judge in Corona times <laughs> um, because obviously everything's more exhausting because of... Mm. The pandemic um but yeah I, I think I definitely needed to take off most of this year from intense comic books but then like the editing process takes ages as well like um like doing it you know with like a proper publisher that makes you actually like correct your grammar <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that sounds like a sensible approach to yeah. small things in between while you get your energy back uh, right, we've got a question from Sarah. Um, so Sarah says, what have you enjoyed most about creating your graphic novel and would you love to see it adapted in a live format in the future? So I suppose that means theatre. Oh, that'd be amazing. <laughs> I've never thought about that. Um, yeah, um, people have said like a film or a TV show, but theatre would be so fun. Um, although the cast would be ridiculous. It would have to be... Um, it would have to be different hats. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, might have to be some colourblind casting. I guess but, everyone uh, dreams of that Netflix deal that will see you oh, in a couple wow. of years. If, if you're listening, Netflix, 
Yeah. Um, get in touch. <laughs> but, uh, always come to Cartoon County. Sarah also asked in a shoe what was the best bit. I think getting to live with those guys in my life, in my head, I mean, getting to live with those characters in my head for that time and getting to bring them to life was, was really lovely. Uh, I think just having that sense of purpose of having a big project, like I actually often get quite stressed in the summer holidays <laughs> because I, I don't have my, I have too much time <laughs> and I put pressure on myself to use it perfectly and obviously it's impossible. But um, having that, just been like, okay, this summer I'm drawing my graphic novel was amazing. <laughs> nice. Even though it was exhausting, it was, it was really lovely. Cool. Um, question from Corinne. Corinne, would you like to ask it yourself? I. Uh, what was I asking? Yes, you're. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. No leading questions here, but <laughs> I just. I, I wondered actually what you thought about non-fiction, and was this kind of idea that you're considering fiction or non-fiction? Um, and you know, how do you feel about non-fiction? I'm not sure um, if you've done any. I like. I like non-fiction, but I. I've feel intensely driven to do so much research that I that I would feel confident in what I was saying. Um, one idea that I've that I used to talk about was I'd love to do a graphic biography of uh, Yao Kusama, but someone's just done it. Um, so it's actually really good. I reviewed it for Broken Frontier. There is one out. Um, so I'd quite like to do some art history writing, but uh, yeah, I just I feel like it's such an intense project. I mean, I did a lot of research for Biscuits, obviously there was um, for all of the various things in these people's lives that I that aren't from my life. Um, I, did, I did do a lot of research, but I think with nonfiction, there's that intense, it, it's more like academic writing, isn't it? There's more pressure to make sure that you're um, being accurate. Whereas with fiction, you can put uh, words in people's mouths and if they're wrong, it's okay because the character's wrong. <laughs> Um, and that's not me that's wrong as the character it's fine <laughs> but yeah I'm I would be up for it it wasn't the project that I was considering but I would be cool um so that's the end of the questions I think unless anybody wants to quickly type another one in the chat while I give you the chance to do that um Jenny I'm just going to ask like have has anything sort of amazing come out of the publication yet has it reached people that you wouldn't have expected to have read it have people reached mm. out to you on social media and told them how much they enjoyed it and so on oh, anything like that I'm just gonna not be able to remember anyone's names <laughs> I've had I've had really lovely feedback the best thing is when it's people I haven't heard of um like when it's strangers because then you, you know they're not just saying it because they're your friend. I think that's always my favourite is when it's someone I don't know who they are at all saying something nice. Um, I've actually, last week I've been asked to do a um, portrait of Jacqueline Wilson in the style of the cookie cutters, but don't tell her because it's, it's a surprise. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so don't tag, don't tag that. <laughs> that was quite exciting. I mean, getting um, the pull quote from Audrey Niffenegger was a great, and, and Shelley Bond as well, like two amazing women that we were really lucky to get right, right um, at the beginning. How did that come about? Did you just ask them? Yeah, I mean, I do. I know Shelley. I've done some work for her. Um, Audrey, I, you know, with you know, with celebrities, when you kind of don't know if you know them or not, and because they, they, if they're gracious, they, they talk to you as if they know you. And it's like we were mutuals on, on Twitter, and I've met her a couple of times, but I didn't know if she remembered who I was or if she was just nice. <laughs> Um, 
but um I, I again I met her um I think it was 2013 uh, when I went to the uh Guardian graphic novel masterclass um which was the same one that Lucy Sullivan went to um and it was it was Audrey Niffenegger and Pat what's his name off of 2000 AD um and yeah, I met her afterwards, so that was that was good timing as well because she'd only just joined Twitter. So I think that's how we ended up mutuals. <laughs> a good testament for the whole thing of being in the conversation on Twitter yeah. and don't be afraid to answer people and speak back and all of that paid off for you. Great. You can find more information about Biscuits Assorted by Jenny Robbins by going to myriadeditions.com and click on the link marked graphics. For more info about Jenny Robbins' work in general, please go to her website, jennyrobbins.com. That's J-E-N-N-Y-R-O-B-I-N-S dot com. And for more info about Miff Tristram's work, who hosted the Q&A with other creators who were taking part in the audience, please go to mifanwaytristram.com. That's M-Y-F-A-N-W-Y. T-R-I-S-T-R-A-M dot com. Coming up next, I'm talking to Jason Scott Smith about his graphic novel Marble Cake, a magical realist tale looking at a community in South London with various characters whose lives intertwine in their local supermarket against the backdrop of disappearances and petty crime, all connected, perhaps, to pressing the wrong button on a magical television remote. To start off with, I'm talking to Jason about his previous self-published work, and the Q&A was recorded yet again in front of a live audience of other cartoonists taking part in the monthly Cartoon County get-together on Zoom. So according to your bio on the back page of uh, Marble Cake, you've been doing comics since 2007? Yeah, yeah, I think that's my started sort of self-publishing mini comics around about that time prior to that i mean i was doing sort of comics in school just sort of messing around not really taking it seriously just because i always enjoyed drawing i had a few mates that um were into it too so we sort of collaborate and make these sort of collaborative comics about our teachers and school and stuff and sort of pass mm-hmm. them around didn't think at the time that it's something i'd actually end up doing but I kind of regret not having those exercise books now. <laughs> but yeah, 2007, I put out my first sort of, you know, photocopied comic called Paunch. Yes, yeah, so that's when I sort of started out. Nice. Seriously, I guess. You told me before we started um, recording that you knew a mutual friend of ours, uh, Jimmy Gherkin, which suggests then that you were kind of part of the small press and zine scene um, in London. Yeah, yeah. So it was around about that time when I was just, uh, put out my first couple of comics. Um, I met Jimmy at a scene fair kind of off Brick Lane. I can't remember what it's called. I think it's called London Zine Fair. I do remember our meeting because I was wearing a tweed blazer with a, a Slayer badge. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> he quite liked the fact that it had those uh, sort of opposites. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, got really close. He lived down the road from me. So we sort of hung out and yeah, around about that time with you know, Gareth Brooks and Richard Cowdery and Peter Lally was sort of doing the small press fair and yes, that sort of thing. Nice. 
Um, well, I found a, a couple of collections of yours on issue, and presumably those are digital versions of uh, complete comics that you self-published. Yes. I have to admit, I can't, you know, I've can't remember the last time I went on issue, but I do, <laughs> remember, I do remember putting this up about 10 years ago. Yeah, uh, so this existed as a sort of physical photocopied thing. Looking as it, as it does on screen uh, with a bright green cover with, you know, a pink box that pops in the middle. Um, actually, I think the the cover was slightly different on the one I printed out, and okay. I didn't make a lot of them. I think I only made about maybe 50, and I didn't even sell them. I just sort of handed them out. <laughs> but I think, if I remember rightly, it had a sort of peach cover, and then mm. the square would have been um, hand-coloured in different colours, depending on what issue it was. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. And this collection then, That Girl, Oh, That Kind of Girl is a collection of one-page strips all about the same character. And then as you read them in succession, you know, it gives us greater insight uh, into her life. How did that format come about? Um, or was it so long ago that it's lost yeah, a little bit of time? I sh- yeah, I, should have, I would have had more ideas and decided on the, the eight that went into it that sort of works the best in sequence. You know, when I wrote them, they wouldn't have all necessarily had the same character in mind, but mm. the ideas I had seemed to fit so I put them all to her and um yeah collected them together nice I mean the thing that I really like about the strips in this collection is that they all follow the same um 12 panel grid but you seem to be quite experimental in terms of changing the point of view from panel to panel which has a a sort of a real kind of like voyeuristic thing as if she's being followed by a drone or something even though this was you know long before that kind of technology existed and then for example, this strip, uh, Paunch, which you mentioned earlier, seems almost kind of surrealistic, the way that the point of view of the reader is moving around the room and focusing in on, on different objects. And that kind of mixture of the domestic and sort of gentle surrealism seems to be something that keeps on reoccurring in your work. I mean, is that a kind of storytelling that you just sort of developed or was it the kind of storytelling that you wanted to use when making comics? I'd say it's something that developed... And as it did, I guess it became a bit more intentional, but I sort of stumbled across it, I guess, first of all. And then your next collection, um, Dumb and Glum, then features various characters. And in this collection, it's when you start mixing photographic elements into your work as well. I mean, as a storyteller, and I suppose as well as someone who was selling their work in both comic fairs and zine fairs, that kind of mixture of photography and drawn comics, I guess, was something that was out there in the scene anyway. But it's interesting to see someone uh, use it because it's still not actually that common. Yeah, I guess um, when I was sort of using the photographs a bit more in the background, and you can see as well, I use different textures. It was more kind of like a way of focusing in on the characters a bit more. So pulling things in and out of focus, like a film, I guess. So I quite liked having a sort of different background to texture to the character you know the characters or the foreground images Hmm. I mean I I really like the fact that when you have collection of work like this you know when even though they're comics produced around the same sort of time it shows you're actually being quite experimental in the way that you render on the page your use of color your use of empty frames I guess you know there's this kind of playfulness to your work and that must be something that you enjoy doing as a creator yeah and also as well much of the stuff you see in here, they're very short strips, one page, a couple of pages. It's kind of nice having that 
freedom, you know, when working on shorter things of just experimenting with a, you know, a quick comic. Obviously, you can experiment within a longer piece, but yeah, doing uh, short short strips is quite a good way to experiment, I find. And these short strips, are they computer coloured? Some of them are, yeah. So on the page we're looking at right now, the one on the right, is I coloured that in Photoshop and mm. the other one's just sort of uh, watercolours. But um, it took me a while to get into computer colouring. First of all, I didn't know how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to teach, go on YouTube but uh, <laughs> teach, get, get some tips. But before that, I think I was kind of a bit adamant that I wouldn't. I wanted to stick to sort of ink and paper and pens and stuff like that. But I eventually came around and um, I do it. You know, most of my stuff is coloured on computer nowadays. I mean, I find the way that you mix different kind of mark making on the page is really interesting. The way that you use pencil cross hatching, the way that you use ink. You've got the Photoshop colouring look like it's crayon, and as you said, don't make, don't take it personal. Is then watercolours using these different kinds of devices to make marks on the page? Is that dependent on the story? Or some of the times is it just you're playing with the materials to say, well, I've not used these to make a comic before. What kind of expression can I get with these on the page? Uh, I think this, the story would drive it, but it may be something I've done before that's not been you know, put out in a strip and I reach into that sort of idea and think, oh, that would work quite well here and then use it. But so, yeah, I guess it's a mixture, really, but mostly driven by the sort of mood of the story, I guess. What kind of uh, visual effect I think would, you know, echo what what's going on yeah so then for example with um sleep and dead swan you're using photographic collage as the background of the images and then that kind of almost adds a filmic flavor to the the comic and it, like i said it's really interesting seeing these different types of storytelling in the same collection going from painting going to pencil work going to photographic collage each of which has a sort of different psychological effect um, in terms of the story that you're reading. Yeah, yeah, it's quite an experimental process because when I've done these, it would have been around about when I first started using photographs and it's mm. it's not something I do as much anymore, but um, looking at these, I might, get, <laughs> I might start doing it again. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're really nice. And it's interesting that you're doing the same thing with the photographs that you did with the drawings, that sometimes there are panels that are just establishing shots showing a corner of a room or in this case like a crop tree you know to give that sort of sense of isolation and uh, kind of psychological desolation that some of your characters seem to feel yeah yeah I guess that that influence would come from films um, I guess like you say the corner of a room also you know could be uh, you know it's quite voyeuristic rather than starting with a big establishing shot and then going in you're already in there kind of thing and then the last one that i've brought i've chosen from that collection i just like because inadvertently you've got a dominic cummings look-alike in uh marmite isn't cheap which <laughs> amuse me but again it's just like it's it's another nice sort of domestic story where you're briefly delving into people's lives and this time you're using the pencils for these kind of like sketchy backgrounds while using more a more rendered style in the foreground. And it's interesting that, you know, having those different tools being used simultaneously, you're using the uninked pencil as a way of kind of pushing the background into the distance, which I think really is really effective as a technique. Oh, thanks, Alex. Yeah, I mean, that's, my, that's my, you know, if you look in Marble Cake, it's 
drawn in the same way. So I, I, I really like the way it looks and it works works for me. So, um, yeah, that's the kind of technique that I've sort of carried on using. I mean, this comic's from 2013, so, yeah. And I suppose that, you know, if you try something out and it works, you use it again. I mean, any kind of comic that you self-publish, in a way, is a process of growing up in public and you're sort of sharing your work in progress with an audience and getting feedback and and seeing what works and what doesn't. Yeah, yeah, totally. And again, just it's quite a nice way to control what the reader focuses on as well. So there'll be moments where the foreground character may be drawn with pencil, so they're sort of blurred, but there'll be a character in the background that would have the sort of more rendered style. So kind of like changing focus on a, a film camera. It's quite a nice way to play with that that method, I think. Nice. How did uh, your involvement with Top Shelf 2.0 come about? Yeah, I, I was just, I think I was just reading the, the 2.0 stuff online and just submitted a strip by email and they, they put it up. Yeah, and then I think I submitted a couple more, but I didn't hear anything back. So it's just the one that's sitting on there. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah. I mean, I really yes. like, you know, the colours really pop in this one. Did you do it in a, a more lurid style, for want of a better word, because you knew it was going to be on the internet and not in print, and therefore the colours would really pop on screen? I, I remember painting this with watercolours, but you know the, the sort of ones you get at uh, school, like the, you mm. know, the strip? I had one of those and just painted it really thick. So I didn't really <laughs> use them in the way they're supposed to be used. But um, And at the time... I was, well, not great with computers now, but I was terrible then and um, wasn't very good at scanning. So a friend actually scanned that for me and he uh, got the colours like that for me. So, yeah, I, I owe him for that one. <laughs> oh, I think I think they look great. I mean, you know, you know, like I was saying, and if, if David Lloyd was here, I'm sure he would uh, agree that, you know, if you're making comics for the computer screen, you might as well accentuate what is being presented on a screen because you have that additional kind of luminosity that you don't get on the printed page and actually with the scanning you can still see the human mark making you know every kind of brush mark that you make which and it's nice the combination of those two elements yeah yeah i totally agree with that yeah did you start to get any feedback from um, american readers after this went online yeah i mean there was a few i think it was round about blogspot sort of days i had a blogspot Mm. And yeah, had a few followers from that's you know America. I guess some of them were found me through this. Yeah, but done a few kind of swaps over the mail with mini comics and that. Mm. Yeah, I should see if my blogspot <laughs> I can still get into it because I <laughs> can't remember who those people are now. But <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So let's move on to your graphic novel. Obviously, Marble Cake is very much a different proposition to your short comics. You've got you've gone from doing a strip that might last between one and, and four pages to something that's several hundred. And is this an ambition that you'd had for a, a number of years? In a way, it still feels a little bit like an anthology because you move backwards and forwards between various people's lives in the graphic novel. But could you talk a little bit about your experience of moving from short comics to a, to a full-length graphic novel? Yeah, sure. It's something I'd always wanted to do. Never never sort of committed to it um I guess I was just sort of still learning doing the shorter strips and you could fin- actually finish them as well um because what I what I tended to do was intend to work on something that was longer and never finish it and then by the time I started again 
didn't finish it and then I didn't like it anymore so it just kind of got put in the bin but um yeah so with marble cake I kind of committed and started out with the character sort of Tracy's story and then that I guess that was a kind of the skeleton of the book and then sort of fleshed it out with various other sort of shorter comics well shorter standalone stories that I hadn't uh, noted down mm. fleshed it out of those but then kind of worked like a, a jigsaw puzzle I guess where I'd see what I wanted to use see what fitted the theme and then sort of connected them up that might be putting a character in or making that person related to this person but sort of fixed all these short stories together mm. which stretched out the the main story that runs through and then yeah it become a graphic novel so yeah like you say making shorter comics it's just basically smushing them together <laughs> and then it kind of become a longer longer piece <laughs> Nice. How did it end up at Avery Hill? Did you ha- send them an unsolicited submission of a number of pages, or did they approach you? Um, they approached me. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was kind of good timing, really, because I just kind of written it out the synopsis how you know the longer piece was going to be, um, and then when they they got in touch and said, "Oh, have you got any? Are you working on anything at the moment, or anything?" we could look at and possibly put out. And it just so happened that I had finished writing a marble cake. So I submitted some some artwork for it and, you know, a brief summary of the book and went from there. Mm. Did they have much um, editorial input as you were doing it or did they just want to see the completed process? Um, no, they were great. They It was a, a nice mixture where they let me get on with it and do what, do what I wanted, but then I would submit bits periodically to Dave and he'd comment, help me out a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, guide me a little bit. And yeah, so it was quite, they had the input, but they were also allowed freedom. You know? mm. I like the, um, the visual pun. I don't know if it's intended or not that you have on the uh, inside front cover that back in the day, posh books would have kind of marble paper on the inside of the hardback cover. And here you have a close up of a marble cake. Was that was that something that you wanted to do once you knew it was going to be in a book? Yeah, to- yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> I had actually considered doing some marbling and mm. um, actually putting marbling in it, but um, like I thought, it, you know, like you say, it worked better as a kind of not crude drawing, but like yeah, like a sort of hand drawn section of a marble cake rather than using actual marbling. But um, that's where the influence come from, definitely. Um, we spoke about uh, voyeurism earlier, and uh, you begin this graphic novel like you did one of your other short comics um, in a toilet with a lady on the loo. Um, I guess, you know, right from the get go, you're giving the reader um, the idea that we're really going to be kind of delving into people's lives and their privacy in this book. Um, and I guess kind of voyeurism and indeed the theme of voyeurism, which come, kind of comes into the narrative in terms of the lead character looking through people's windows um, and so on is something that seems to be quite important to the narrative. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, I'm sorry. I've got distracted then reading uh, some questions that come up. Could you <laughs> just repeat uh, the first bit of that? Sorry, Alex. Just, you know, thinking about the idea of voyeurism as being, you know, intrinsic uh, to the narrative that you're making and, and why this is a theme that you find yourself returning to. I guess quite, a, quite a lot of the ideas I have come out of, um, not that I go and spy on people, but <laughs> overhearing <laughs> things on public transport or 
um, in the street or in the shop, supermarket. That's quite a uh, good place for it. That's why I've used it here. But um, yeah, so um, I guess that's sort of directed it a bit. And yeah, what's more private than someone sitting on the toilet? Uh, so I thought that'd be the perfect way to start start the story. Hmm. Well, I'll I'll head to the chat for some of the questions uh, that people have asked. It looks like this book is entirely digital. So Mitchie's asking, is that your process now, or do you still use uh, pen and um, ink that you've scanned in? Um, yeah, I still use pen and ink that I've scanned in. Okay. Um, yeah. So if we're looking at um, this page here. Um, all the sort of foreground, you know, the characters, the coloured bits would have started out as um, pen and ink drawings. Hmm. Um, and for the backgrounds, which I drew using pencil, I done them with a light box, but I'd flip the actual sheet over and draw those backgrounds reversed in pencil hmm. uh, and then scan in either side, flip over the background and lay them on top of each other. Hmm use half the amount of paper doing that as well so <laughs> the originals to this book are double-sided so did you then have to clean the artwork up because it was bleeding through on the scanner oh dear <laughs> yeah and then going going further into process as they said it looks digital yeah so obviously i colored them in all uh, colored them in using photoshop mm. um yeah um myth's asking about uh the name marble cake I mean, as a reader, I was wondering if it's because you show one of the characters actually making a marble cake uh, in the book. And in doing so, uh, when you mix the ingredients, you mix them in such a way that I guess when you eat the cake, you know, you could taste them together. But when you look at it visually, they're still um, separate. And I wonder if that's kind of commenting on the lives of the characters and the narrative, that sometimes they're mingled together and sometimes they're just existing side by side. Yeah, that's kind of exactly what it is. Yeah, nice. um, it, uh, that's kind of the the title kind of came about from that, um, I think. And then I wanted to, yeah, have an actual scene of someone making a cake within the story. That's why it turned out to be her favourite cake. So um, yeah, but that was the intention, definitely. Um, Jonathan's asked about whether Avery Hills editorial input stretched to kind of technical aspects of the book for example the layout of speech balloons and things like that um avery hill's input today sorry yeah yeah uh, i don't believe so um no i think most of the sort of layout and artistic look of the book was all all on me um there were some bits with the flow and some wording and things that they helped with but um as far as aesthetically, um, no, there wasn't as that much input from them. Okay. Because the book has so many different characters whose lives kind of intertwine and then go in separate directions, um, I wonder if you had one of those kind of like stereotypical uh, walls like they do in serial killer movies with like at lines going between different characters and showing how they, they mix. I mean, was the plotting anything like that? Um, no, I didn't actually. Um, that's... I might do that next time, though. That's a good idea. Uh, I do quite like uh, sort of real crime stuff. Uh, but um, no, it's all just jotted down on my phone. That's where I'll have all the ideas and then messy notes while I'm working on it. Link, You know, arrows pointing to bits of text. Um, but uh, so it's simple, in a way, I guess. But um, yeah, I will 
I will take that on idea on. <laughs> um, it's also come up that some of the ways that you might edit a graphic novel, particularly when there are different characters that come in and out, is to lay all the pages on the floor um, and then try them in different orders. Is that anything? Is that something that you did at all? Uh, yeah, ah. yeah. Um, would have been with um, when I was doing the sort of roughs, just getting the kind of. God, I forgot the word now. Uh, yeah, getting the, la- the the layout the way I wanted it to look did involve a bit of um, experimenting, laying pages out. And the, the good thing about it being digital is you can just sort of take out certain panels, move new ones in, etc. So, um, mm. yeah, there was a bit of that. You've got a really interesting mix of characters in the graphic novel. Um, a lot of them are sympathetic. A lot of them are very kind of self-obsessed. Z- um, Zara's asking, how do you actually feel about your characters? It's <laughs> a bit of a mix, really. Um, I guess some of them I like, some of them you're not supposed to like. Um, but um, I wouldn't say I hated any of them. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose not everyone in the book is something is someone you'd want to buy a drink. <laughs> no, no, not at all, no. <laughs> and it's interesting that the um, the supermarket in the graphic novel is very much kind of a focal point that Tracy works there and then that obviously gives a venue where all the characters can briefly meet and interact. Was that one of the starting points of the graphic novel that if you have this large ensemble cast there needs to be one place where they can actually assemble um, at least once in the book so that you can kind of introduce them like that? Yeah, totally. Um, it could have been... I could have been a pub as well, um, but I, I quite liked just the setting of a supermarket. Um, yeah, I just, that seemed like the perfect perfect place for me to sort of, um, yeah, like you say, have the characters meet, having them all in one place at one time. Yeah, exactly that. And I, I really like some of the things that you do in terms of putting imagery both in speech balloons. For example, there was an earlier page that I went past where we see a cat and in the cat's kind of thought balloon is a picture of a bird. And here we see two characters looking at each other across the supermarket uh, checkout. And we see like a negative drawing of each other character in the reverse character's eye. I really like these kind of experimental ideas that you incorporate into the artwork. Where did the kind of negative drawing come from uh, to start off with? That just felt like the the easiest way to kind of... Well, if, let's take the the cat for example. Um, that I think for me that comes across as if it was just a cat thing. If the cat was thinking, "Oh, I'm hungry, I want to eat a bird," <laughs> it's not really that that funny. But that and I don't know. That just 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 happened, I guess. Um, I've done it in the. I guess going back to doing the shorter strips where it's an idea that was born out of doing one of those, having sort of imagery within the speech bubbles. So mm. yeah. But in a way, it's, it feels like it almost ties in um, with the actual lettering in in the speech balloons because you have these black speech balloons and thought balloons with your kind of um, your white um, handmade lettering. The way that then these images, like in the eyes and the bird in the um, uh, the cat's thoughts, are rendered with a similar line. Um, I was wondering, you know, if there, there's a connection there. Yeah. Um... I think my my first thought was so it's it it matched the style mm. of of the uh, the text itself. So 
I don't want to stray too far away from that just for the sort of general look of the look of it. Um, and with the eyes on the um, the other slide you had up, um, yeah, same reason, but also that's that's how they would kind of appear in real yeah. life, I guess. So, um, I spoke about uh, kind of surrealism and magical realism earlier, and one of the plot points in the book is that um, I probably have I gone past it? Um, yes, I have. Hang on. Uh, there's a, a television that a bunch of the characters have that when you press a certain button, uh, they disappear into the screen. Or maybe I didn't include it. Um, that kind of surrealistic part of the story, where did that come from? Um, so that, I think it was on the next slide, actually. Um, that okay. one was, again, it started off as its own sort of standalone strip. Oh, no, maybe it's not. Actually, no, they're just, yeah. And when I was sort of compiling what would go in Marble Cake, that fits perfectly because, you know, the the theme, I guess, is sort of escapism, which worked very well with the other the storylines, the other characters are going on. So it felt, you know, having that sort of sci-fi, I guess, <laughs> side of the story felt like the perfect accompaniment to the sort of realism um, that went alongside it. And also... A bit unexpected as well when you you started reading a few pages, then that happens all of a sudden. So it's quite quite nice to mm. not shock the reader, but um, give them something unexpected. You know, mm. um, we mentioned earlier about how some of your dialogue is taken from snatches of overheard conversations. Um, Gareth's asking, do you actually have a notebook where you write down overheard bits of conversation, or indeed a sketchbook um, where you draw people surreptitiously? I actually keep keep a note you know on my on my phone i've got you know everyone's got a phone now but, uh, a, a note section so i just jot everything down in there i'd love to keep a little book but i know i'd end up losing it or <laughs> not have it on me when i've heard something that would be you know gold a, a nugget um but yeah so i keep it all on my phone and it could even just be one word someone says or it could be a whole conversation or, yeah, anything like that. Yeah, so it's all stored on my phone and then I just kind of dip in when I need when I need things. <clears throat> um, Michael's asked, could you talk about your process, the, the kind of steps you go through from writing the story and then breaking them down into panels and pages? Yeah, so um, I would write a sort of brief sort of outline of where the, the actual story and... I do know that it will evolve as I work on it, so it's not too rigid. But um, And then as a starting point for the actual comic, um, I'd start off in a sort of small notebook, just drawing thumbnails um, very roughly. And then once I've kind of laid out a chunk, I'd probably work in, I don't know, chunks of 10 pages. Mm. I'd draw neater versions of it and then once I've got the whole thing together with slightly neater versions and I'd actually start with the artwork itself. So, but during that period of drawing out thumbnails that the plot might change because something with the actual imagery, I might think, Oh, this would work quite nicely. Um, and it evolves as I work on it. <clears throat> mm. And also, I guess in terms of plotting, when you're doing a much longer narrative like this, I've paused on uh, a double page spread where you just have 
um, the landscape as kind of a moment of pause between narrative and then you go to a shocked bird rising from um, from a fence. Having those kind of like beats where you can pause and just look at uh, the surroundings, I guess that's a really nice device in terms of just letting the reader breathe in a way after you've had you know a burst of intense storytelling. Yeah, yeah. This this these pages in particular were sort of like a double praised uh, like bleed in the middle of the book, and yeah, it was just sort of the the story sort of takes a turn here, and yeah. I guess this one was influenced by the the saying of pink sky in the morning. Huh. I always said pink. Some people say red, but I don't know. <laughs> and then you probably notice for the remainder of the book, you can see the raindrops start there. Mm. Bird flutters off. And then, yeah, as the story changes, then the, the weather does in the second part as well. <clears throat> um, Jonathan's asking, is your art based on any formal um, art training or is it kind of self-learned? Um, uh, yeah, I, I went to... Uh, art school so yeah studied start of course started off as graphic art um so it's mainly printmaking drawing stuff like that Hmm. and it changed its name a few times while i was there i don't know if they (laughs) knew what they were doing but they they did that's fine yeah but um so yeah uh, university taught and then yeah just experimenting from 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 then on but i've always always drawn throughout my whole life so Mm. Um, but I did get learn a lot and was influenced quite a lot, especially during my foundation at university. Okay. Would I be reading too much into it? When you look at these kind of flat areas of colour, does any of that come from printmaking in terms of uh, a kind of a visual language that you've stuck to, even though it's a different way of rendering on the page? I guess, yeah, I guess so, actually, yeah. I mean, I do things and I don't know why I'm doing them. And then, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I guess it does uh, go back to sort of training at art school and printmaking and stuff. And, um, you know, the, the, going back to your um, speech balloons, I really like this example here where, um, uh, and I wanted to include these pages because we see the marble cake uh, completed and, and in a panel of the art. Um, I really like this technique where when the character is sort of falling asleep, the, um, the text becomes scrambled and unreadable as they're moving from consciousness to unconsciousness and then turns into a baby developing. And I think in the, in particular, that sort of illustrates my idea of how the images in the thought balloons matches the kind of hand-drawn, that it's just kind of a, an expression of of thought and therefore is rendered in a similar kind of way. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Yeah, this is the perfect example of that, actually, this uh, sequence here. It just it felt, I don't know what I come up with the idea of doing that, but it, mm. it's how my head would feel, if you know what I mean, so... Yeah, and we all we all, we think in images, don't we? So, it, with certain things, it makes more sense to use imagery rather than text. Yeah, nice. We spoke earlier about how um, you kind of uh, met fellow creators and sold your work at zine fairs and comic fairs in London. Uh, Mitchie's asking, uh, do you still do so um, these days, or at least either side of COVID? <laughs> uh, um, I haven't in a while, to be honest. Um, I did attend LCAF when Marble Cake was released. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I, I mean, I don't actually have much work to sell at the moment, to be honest with you. But yeah, I plan to do it again in the future. I'm working on a book at the moment. I've got Marble Cake. Uh, I want to make some more sort of self-published mini comics and that. So it is something I will look at doing again in the future, but I haven't in a while, to be honest, no. 
Well, and in the meantime, if anyone wants to read uh, your work beyond the graphic novel, um, I've got some links on screen to your website and uh, the two um, anthologies on issue, um, if anyone wants to read those. One thing I did want to ask about is uh, you quite often use really interesting interiors and exteriors in terms of presenting domestic space on the page. Do you think that comes from film, that idea of kind of um, scene setting, of kind of very much locating uh, the story in a in a certain kind of design space? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I think the film's probably my biggest influence for as far as far as the sort of pace and style of my comics go. So, yeah, like I said before about starting in close um, for certain parts of the story, um, that would have come from you know, film. Um, I do sort of make notes of the sort of, uh, sort of layout or sort of shots and films and stuff and sort of take influence from that. Um, mm. Yeah, I've gone blank. My vocabulary is not great, but <laughs> when I'm, when I'm talking <laughs> here, I can't, there's certain words I just can't remember. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if we're talking about film, to use a very uh, pretentious term, I mean, it did make me think of the use of uh, maison-scene in film that, you know, when you actually see just the detail of a set that somehow also gives you a clue um, about the person who lives there. When we see just a little, like for example, one of your comics, a skirting board with a crack in it, you know, that tells us as much about the person who's living there as the person themselves, because they are in an environment that is sort of like deteriorating around them. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> with comics, obviously, you know, it's visual. So you've got that and obviously with films as well, but you've got that to work with. Whereas if I was writing short story i might have to describe describe that to get sort of feel of my you know character's personality or environment so mm. yeah just just uh it's nice to sort of lay those sort of clues clues out before we actually get into the, the meat <laughs> of the story and the character yeah and uh what's your next project it's kind of a similar sort of thing really but um it's again it's sort of realism sort of spying on you know people's uh, sort of gritty realism stories but then it's all brought together with a narrator that I've created which is actually a ghost hmm. so he becomes the sort of narrator of the comic and yeah he's some guy from the he's like a 70s rocker basically huh. so he he'll be sort of the narrator of the story and then we go into the different people's lives and again they all sort of meet up and cross over but for this one I wanted to sort of make it uh, in sort of real life environment so with marble cake it was supposed to be a sort of standard outskirts of london type south london sort of area whereas with this project i'm actually including real places and uh photographing places and drawing them mm. so it's all set in the borough of lewisham where i used to live mm. yeah so i don't know when that'll be finished <laughs> but that's what i'm working on at the moment as i say i'd like to do some smaller projects that I can sort of print up and start selling work again that way. Yeah. But it's good actually, because before Marvel cake, I hadn't really made much work apart from putting the odd bits online. And then I got a boost from the interest in Avery Hill, uh, done that book. As soon as I finished that, I started working on the one I'm working on now. It's taken a long time. <laughs> so yeah, it's good to get back into the, the scene, I guess, making work, um, doing things like this. So thanks again for having me on. Um, but yeah and going back to Gareth actually who's on the call he turns out he lives on my road <laughs> so uh, 
I bought one of his books and got it hand delivered and met up with him for a pint since then. So um, it's, yeah, good hanging out with other creators again because it's not something I've done so much for a while. To be honest well, Ian Williams, uh, in one of his books, has drawn Simon Lear's house uh, in some of the panels. So should we see uh, cameos by the habitats of London cartoonists in your next book? <laughs> <laughs> you never know, possibly. <laughs> nice. Um, oh, a uh, question from Michael. Do you think you have any influences um, as a storyteller from any particular writers or comic creators? I mean, when I first started making comics, so Daniel Klaus was a heavy influence. Uh, I think that may have been pretty obvious. <laughs> but yeah, I guess with he was my main sort of comic influence when I started out. But I guess in that way, it was more kind of kind of like learning to play an instrument and sort of doing cover songs in a way. That's the way I kind of looked at it. <laughs> Um, but nowadays it's just become a big m- mismatch of films. Um, I guess stuff like Ken Loach and Mike Lee, Lynn Ramsey, that sort of British realism stuff I was really influenced by. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't, I mean, I guess with, with being influenced by writers and artists doesn't, it may be... Possibly, I don't know, I'd say my favourite writers, for example, would be like John Cheever, Patrick Hamilton. Um, I wouldn't say their sort of style necessarily comes across in my work, but I do get slight influences by it from that sort of stuff as well. So I always forget when I'm on the spot. <laughs> so. um, well, I guess you're on all the media channels. I'd Thanks. say Instagram's the most, that's the thing I use when I'm, you know, social media. So it's just at Scott Jason Smith for on Instagram and then website scottjasonsmith.com nice cool well uh it's been a a great pleasure having you as our guest at cartoon county yeah thanks everyone cool thank you you can find more information about marble cake by scott jason smith by going to averyhillpublishing.com and their online shop can be found at averyhillpublishing.bigcartel.com Scott Jason Smith's work can be found at scottjasonsmith.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-J-A-S-O-N-S-M-I-T-H dot com. Some of Jason's work can be found on the Top Shelf website as part of their Top Shelf 2.0 project. And to find these strips alongside other great webcomics by various other creators please go to topshelfcomics.com stroke TS 2.0. That's T-O-P-S-H-E-L-F-C-O-M-I-X dot com stroke TS 2.0. And online versions of Scott's earliest self-printed comics can be found at issue.com stroke Scott Jason Smith. That's I-S-S-U-U dot com stroke Scott Jason Smith. My interviews with Jenny and Jason were all recorded at Cartoon County, and you can find more info about forthcoming events by going to cartooncounty.com. Cartoon County are also on Twitter, at Cartoon County, as indeed am I, at Panel Borders, and today's guests, at Jenny Robbins, and at Mr. Scotty J. Smith. The more than 500 previous episodes of Panel Borders can all be found online at www.panelborders.wordpress.com 
and we'll be back in our normal hour-long slot at the beginning of October. So keep an eye on panelborders.wordpress.com for more info about the new season of the UK's only monthly radio show about comics, graphic novels, and sequential art. Thanks for listening. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.